Hello, welcome to Asha's Legal Outlook. This episode is part of our Corporate Crime and Investigations mini-series. Today we're going to talk about sanctions, investigations and enforcement. I'm Tom Cummins, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues Sophie Law, Olivier Dorgons and Alexander Dimitrenko. Sophie works with me in London on UK sanctions. Olivier is an EU sanctions expert, while Alexander leads our firm's US sanctions practice. Okay, well that's the introductions. Well, let's start at an obvious place, which is how do investigations start when you're dealing with sanctions issues? Sophie, do you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, Sanctions investigations can start in in a number of different ways. Um, And by investigation, we mean either an internal investigation or one that's been prompted by an approach from a regulator. So firstly, an investigation could start because a business discovers a breach or a potential breach and wants to investigate to find out what's happened, to, to, to confirm what's gone wrong, or even if it is a breach. Um, a business could find out about a potential breach in which they've been involved in through a third party, such as a party involved in the activity or the transaction that they've been involved in, or because of something that a whistleblower has said. And I suppose the the third way an investigation can start is if you've been approached by a regulator, perhaps requesting information about a particular transaction or activity, or because a third party has reported a breach that you've been involved in. And the substance and response to an investigation will depend on how it started and, and the result. But generally, there'll be a fact-finding stage, perhaps a notification to a regulator, and then some remedial steps. And sticking with you, who actually does the investigating in the UK if you're in the realm of external investigations? So it's a fairly complex picture in, in the UK, and it largely depends on the type of sanction or activity that's an issue. There are a number of different enforcement authorities First, taking financial sanctions, so that's an asset freeze or a capital markets restriction. There are both criminal and civil enforcement options. OFSI, so the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, is the primary authority who will investigate breaches of financial sanctions, and it has the power to impose civil monetary penalties. We understand that OFSI also works closely with the National Crime Agency, whose corruption unit investigates bribery, corruption, and sanctions evasion. However, as I said, breaches of financial sanctions can also be a criminal offence. So OFSI or the NCA may refer a case to law enforcement for criminal prosecution. And finally, on the financial sanctions side, the Serious Fraud Office can investigate and prosecute cases which involve sanction breaches alongside serious or complex fraud or bribery and corruption. And on the trade sanction side, HMRC is responsible for enforcement and it will investigate and decide whether or not to pursue a breach. It's fair to say it's more experienced than OFSI. And it will often seek to reach compound settlements with parties who have breached trade sanctions, but it also has the power to prosecute breaches. Okay, thank you. So so even in the UK, which is one jurisdiction, we've got quite a complicated picture, lots of different actors at work. Olivier, let's go across the channel and talk about the picture in the European Union. Who investigates sanctions breaches in the different member states? One of the difficulties of the EU approach to enforcement is the fact that, uh, as you know, while EU sanctions are adopted at uh, the EU level, enforcement is left to each of the 27 member states. So that leads to 27 different ways of approaching enforcement. Uh, and that has led in the past to um, massive discrepancies in the ways in which sanctions violations are approached by the national um, uh, competent authorities. Um, for instance, uh, violations of sanctions can be ad- only administratively sanctioned uh, in some member states, while in other member states it can lead an individual to jail 
and I can see significant fines being levied against a corporation. The EU has decided to tackle that issue, um, especially following the numerous waves of sanctions against Russia, um, uh, by trying to harmonize uh, and put together a common playing field. Um, there were three steps that was taken. There were three steps that were taken um, in May of last year. The first was the addition of sanctions to the list of EU crime, uh, which uh, notably facilitate the ability of member states to seize um, assets which uh, have been gained as part of uh, circumvention of sanction. The second um, uh, is a work in progress of a directive that uh, will lay out uh, minimal um, rules for violations or minimal penalties for violations of EU sanctions. Um, and this will allow the issues to be tackled similarly in each of the member states. And the third step taken by the EU is the um, thoughts being given to the creation of an enforcement agency um, at the European level, or at least in an agency that would oversee enforcement actions taken by the various national competent authority. Um, there's been debate uh, at EU level whether or not these powers should be given to a standalone agency or whether such um, oversight powers could be given to the money laundering authority that is being created as part of the latest round of regulations on money laundering. Um, ultimately, what we see at the EU level is first the fact that there is discrepancies in enforcement action that it's, uh, that leads to limited um, enforcement at EU level, but also a strong desire to push for a more unified approach and a stronger enforcement. That makes sense. Thank you, Olivier. Uh, and Alexander, turning to you, I think when most people think about sanctions enforcement, the, the might and reach of the US authorities comes to mind. Do you want to just give us an overview of how US sanctions enforcement works? Great question, Tom. Thank you. Uh, well, sanctions enforcement in the US has been uh, a priority for the US authorities, but also uh, it's been a leading uh, regulator uh, from, from, you know, in the world. And that's partially because U.S. has secondary sanctions, which apply globally without any U.S. nexus, but also because U.S. dollar is and remains to be the key currency uh, of the world trade. So the the way the enforcement works is uh, the OFAC uh, is the uh, regulator uh, that imposes the rules and then enforces them. So has kind of two big arms uh, of teams, one team creating the rules, the other team enforcing the rules. And uh, both of those teams uh, have been increasing in numbers and increasing in their budgets in terms of how much, you know, they're expecting to be bringing as a revenue. I hope that's a good introduction to the OFAC generally. That's very helpful. Thank you, Alexander. Um, I think now that we've set the scene, what the audience might really appreciate is some discussion of some of the strategic issues that come up if you're faced with a sanctions investigation. and. Probably the obvious question that would come up first if you identify an issue in your organization is, uh, do I have to go and tell somebody? Do I have to go and report to an authority of some description? Sophie, what's the thinking on that in the UK? So in the UK, the answer really depends on, on who you are and what the breach is. There are a number of different categories of organizations that have specific obligations to report certain matters to OFSI. So certain professions, certain regulated professions, including banks, auditors, accountants, estate agents, 
described as relevant firms in the legislation, have obligations to inform officer if they know or reasonably suspect that a person is a designated person and has committed offences under financial sanctions regulations and, and where that information comes to them in the course of carrying on their business. Now, on top of that, banks and financial institutions have additional reporting obligations, unsurprisingly, given their connection to the financial system. They also have to report any activity relating to frozen bank accounts. So that's bank accounts relating to designated persons. And another consideration outside specifically um, the, the sanctions um, regulator and legislation is if you are a regulated body, do you have your own regulator who you need to report to? So for example, banks and financial institutions, do you have an obligation to report to the FCA, lawyers, for example, the SRA? Thank you. And Olivier, is, is the picture similar in the EU when you're making that assessment of whether you should or are obliged to report? Well, I think a distinction here should be made between entities which are subject to specific money laundering uh, reporting obligations, such as banks, insurance company, financial institution more generally, and certain professions such as lawyers and accountants and, and other regulated professions. For these, um, the uh, question is not so much uh, uh, whether or not you get credit for self-reporting, but whether or not you can be sanctioned for failure to self-report suspicious activity. And as we know, the uh, violations of sanctions can often lead to money laundering offenses, be it um, violations of individual sanctions or sexual sanctions. So as a result, the question of enforcement is tackled differently by subjected entities uh, to money laundering obligations and uh, industrial comp certain types of industrial company which, which are not. Um, if you are talking about entities which are not subject to specific money laundering obligations and do not have an obligation to file suspicious activity reports, then the questions of self-reporting is a very tricky one from a EU standpoint because you do not get credits uh, for um, a cooperation or you do not get credit for a potential fine that could be levied against you. Um, that um, is very true in countries such as France, for instance, that have implemented different prosecution agreement um, for certain types of subject matters such as corruption or money laundering, but EPAs are not available to uh, sanctions uh, for, for violations of sanctions. So as a result, while you do get credits for self-reporting corruption offenses uh, or money laundering offenses or tax evasion offenses, you will not get credit as part of the DPAs for sanctions or offenses simply because DPAs are not available for sanctions offenses. So as a result, um, Unless you are subjected to a laundering reporting obligation, the questions of self-reporting should be uh, thought uh, about very carefully by economic operators because contrary to what uh, you may see in other countries, you do not get credit for, for self-reporting. Thanks, Olivier. And Alexander, turning to you, you and I have been involved in a number of matters where we've had to counsel clients as to whether they should report sanctions issues to, to OFAC. And one of the questions that often comes up is, are, are the US authorities going to find out about this issue some other way? For instance, if a financial institution has to make a report, what, what's the analysis there in terms of that strategic call? Thank you, Tom. Indeed, uh, you may recall a couple of calls very recently when we discussed those points and exactly the questions come up, particularly in the secondary sanctions uh, realm. Again, as a reminder, uh, companies that are not uh, US uh, companies, so non-US players, they don't have uh, the obligation to report and self-report to the US regulator because the US regulator doesn't have the direct jurisdiction over them due to uh, even due to secondary sanctions. However, the reporting may occur 
uh, if uh, someone else finds out, uh, and typically it's the banks who, who find out about potential violations, if banks do find out, uh, they those of uh, financial institutions who work uh, in the U.S., they nearly daily send suspicious activity reports to the U.S. Uh, regulator, to the OFAC, in which they can point fingers and say, we believe there is suspicious activity or potential violation. Unlike uh, points made by uh, uh, Olivia just now, the U.S. does offer various uh, incentives for coming and self-reporting on yourself, uh, especially if you a first-time violator and if your violation is non-egregious. That is all maybe very helpful in bringing down the penalty, potential penalty, to you know a very minimum. Frankly, in one one of my cases, it went down from nearly 200 million to about you know four five million. Ultimately, it may also be no violation at all if you if you have you know various elements that can support you. But to your point, Tom, it's not just that we we can have someone else pointing a finger at you. I would agree with Olivia. You need to first think: Do you have a jurisdiction? So if you take a position that there is no jurisdiction, you don't have liability, and there's no one else pointing a finger at you, it really ultimately is, you know, one million or hundred dollar million question whether you will, as a good corporate citizen, may may prefer to file, a, you know, a, you know, you know, a disclosure with the U.S. government or not, and you may prefer to do so because if you have other U.S. exposure. Well, because again, you may be fearing that someone else will report on you first, and then you don't get any credits for, for, for self-reporting. So those are taken into account and they're very, very fact specific. So there is no one answer if at all, but it is a very, very important question to ask, especially before making uh, that reporting, uh, because once it's made, uh, then, you know, the, 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 the whole cooperation and, and, and all of the other elements will come into play. And it's not, you know, it's a long process, difficult process, expensive. Uh, uh, so if it can be avoided uh, without violating the law, then it probably would be one of the considerations. Yep, no, that makes sense. And one of the questions I think that arises in the strategic context is, has there actually been a breach in the first place? And one base upon which there may not be a breach is if somebody who did something that was technically contrary to sanctions didn't know or have any reasonable cause to suspect that they, they had breached sanctions. And Sophie, our law in the UK has evolved on this this point when it comes to financial sanctions quite recently, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, when we were part of the EU and, and all the way up to June last year, that, that was the position in the UK. But since June last year, um, there has been strict civil liability for financial sanctions breaches. So that means that it will no longer be a defence if you didn't know or you didn't have reasonable cause to suspect that what you were doing was a breach of financial sanctions. The standard of proof here is on the balance of probability. So obviously still has to prove that on the balance of probabilities, the breach occurred, but that defense is no longer available to you for financial sanctions. And that leads to a very interesting um, position where there's a diff now a difference between um, financial sanctions and, and trade sanctions, which are um, a very significant um, area of the current regime in respect of Russia. So as trade sanctions, it, it will still be a defense if you had no knowledge or reasonable cause to suspect that what you were doing was a breach of sanctions. Yeah. Whereas I think, Olivier, that, that concept of only being liable if you knew or had reasonable cause to suspect that you're breaching sanctions, that is very much still at the center of the EU sanctions architecture. That's that's correct, Tom. That that prevails in the EU both 
with respect to individual sanctions and sectoral sanctions. The legal instruments, the regulation that are used by the Council and the Commission to adopt uh, sanctions, uh, all contain uh, causes, uh, clauses which allows uh, companies to not uh, be prosecuted, or at least that puts company in a place where they wouldn't be prosecuted if they had no reasonable cause to suspect that they were either um, entering into or maintaining a business relationship with a company or an individual that was sanctioned, uh, or if they were operating in a sector that was subject to um, uh, sexual sanctions. Um, but interestingly, uh, a lot of European companies are also subject to UK sanctions or US sanctions that have a strong extraterritorial reach. So as a result, um, it's putting this company between a rock and a hard place in the sense that while they can benefit from the uh, no reasonable costs who suspect um, the provisions of EU sanctions, they can face strict liability for individual sanctions in the UK or for individual and sexual sanctions in the US, as I'm sure Alexander will explain in a minute. So as a result, we often see company uh, um, uh, be extremely diligent um, on the basis of a strict liability regime, even though uh, there's not such strict liability regime when it comes to sanctions in the EU. And it's interesting because that has an impact in the ways in which they address the due diligence they conduct um, with respect to their counterparties, uh, and um, also um, when they address um, final users rule as well, uh, when we look into sexual sanctions or export control provisions, we see more and more companies that have an international reach um, abide by US or UK standards when EU law uh, doesn't have such strict expectations. Thanks, Olivier. And Alexander, Olivier has teed you up to comment on, on the position in the US. Ob obviously, a strict liability regime there. Can you just explain how that plays out in relation to enforcement issues? Well, thank you. Indeed, strict liability. And again, in the US, we're functioning in two different regimes in a way. One that is uh, US primary sanctions for those you know, who have US nexus. Uh, and the regime that isn't. So let's presume, uh, because I suspect a lot of our listeners would be potentially keen to hear about this, the latter, the non-US parties potentially being exposed to the US regime. So first of all, there are no defenses. So, you know, there's no defense, uh, you know, to, to, to potential violation. But uh, there are various ways in which uh, the regulator will take into account what company has been doing or has done uh, to address uh, sanctions uh, risks, in, you know, generally, and typically the, one of the very first questions, if not the first question, from the U.S. regulator when you go to them with a potential concern or you know violation admission, uh, is you know what are the policies and procedures uh, around uh, the sanctions? Are they real or are they paper policy? Who are the sanctions experts internally or externally? Are you using anyone from 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 law firms to help you? Have there been any training by Ashes or anyone else who has that expertise to tell not only the legal team but critically business teams as well? One area in which I think a lot of companies do find trouble is how those policies and procedures go through the entire pyramid uh, of the corporates, meaning do they reach all of the departments? Do they go to all the subsidiaries and how how that is being taken into account? And ultimately, I think the the what what we see with the regulators, the, they they'll acknowledge and they will give a lot of credit to uh, companies that have taken very careful view and and internally implement very careful procedures, policies, and have strong 
uh, sanctions and the compliance departments. And if there is a problem, how quickly remedial measures were taken into account. And if there is an issue with rogue employees, again, vis-a-vis the full company policy, that will be a very different picture as opposed to a company generally uh, being not fully compliant. So I think while you have no defenses generally and strict liability as a regime, you can prepare yourself. You can allow yourself to be in a position that is defendable and to allow yourself to tell the regulator it's not the company culture policy that that is that has exposed the company uh, to a potential violation. It may be a rogue employee, it may be a mistake, sometimes a mechanical mistake. Uh, but that that is that that is something that companies you know continuously will need to look into. And frankly, we see a lot of enhancement in that area in the last few years, where policy procedures you know, have grown in the sanctions area. Thank you. That that's really valuable insight, I think, in terms of what corporates are doing to mitigate this risk um, when it comes to sanctions. Um, as we move into the final part of this podcast, I wonder if I can get two minutes from each of you on predictions for what we're likely to see in the year, the year ahead when it comes to um, sanctions, investigations and enforcement. Sophie, I'll start with you. What's on your radar? So I think as the pace of, of new sanctions slows, um, we'll inevitably see authorities and regulators turning their attention to enforcement. And, and obviously, the UK financial regulator has indicated that enforcement is absolutely a priority for them. Um, they've indicated that they're scaling up their workforce. I think in their report at the end of last year, they indicated they were aiming to be at 100 full-time employees. Um, and that's an, a, a huge increase from sort of maybe only 30 or 40 before the invasion of Ukraine. They're indicating that they're trying to move from a reactive to a proactive compliance and enforcement model. And um, they, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they've increased their enforcement powers and um, move to strict liability test for, for civil breaches of financial sanctions. And that really encourages greater attention on, on, on enforcement. I think there's also likely to be a big focus on sanctions evasion and, and circumvention. The, the recent designations of a number of um, individuals and corporates referred to as oligarch enablers um, in April. And that is individuals and entities who have said to have knowingly assisted Russian oligarchs to hide their assets or evade the effect of financial sanctions. And the UK government described that move as part of a crackdown on circumvention and evasion. So I, I think we can certainly see that there's going to be more coming down the track targeting evasion and, and circumvention. And I think the UK government has also indicated that there's going to be more money available for sanctions in, in enforcement um, as part of their economic deterrence initiative. I think they said that there's going to be an additional 50 million pounds in, in funding there. Yeah, thank you. And as, as with so many things in commerce, where you put the resources is often the best evidence of, of where the priorities lie. Um, Olivier, a couple of thoughts from you on predictions for the years ahead? Enforcement, as I've uh, mentioned earlier, will definitely be a, an area of focus for the EU. Um, I think it's also due to the fact that, uh, uh, as uh, was highlighted by Sophie and Alexander, enforcement is a uh, at the heart of the uh, actions of the UK and the US in terms of, of sanctions. Uh, so I think uh, the EU does not want to lag behind uh, the UK and the US and other Western countries in, in, in that sphere. Interestingly, I think an analogy should be drawn here with um, other uh, economic crimes areas, uh, such, as anti such as corruptions or money laundering, where we've seen efforts being undertaken with respect to transnational enforcement, uh, 
I have a few examples in mind, the Abbas case being one of the very good illustrations of an enforcement that was jointly led by the SFO, the DOJ, and the French uh, prosecuting offices. Uh, so uh, while we're not at that stage yet when it comes to sanctions, then we first have to put together as a, as a, as a, um, as a regional union a common, common playing field rules for, for economic actors uh, across the various 27 member states. Uh, that's, I believe, the goal of the European Con Council and the European Commission uh, to reach the level of enforcement that we have been accustomed to from the US and that we're seeing uh, from the UK and then be in a position where it can more effectively cooperate um, on the enforcement of uh, sanctions violation of companies that are operating in multiple jurisdictions and are accordingly subject to multiple sanctions rules. A lot to look forward to and watch out for in the European Union, I think, Olivier. Um, and finally, Alexander, what are your predictions? Last but not least, uh, speaking on behalf of the US, allow me to uh, retreat points uh, shared by my colleagues. Enforcement itself is a priority. Similar to other regulators, US is hiring new prosecutors. If you're looking for a, a good uh, job, interesting job, uh, and you're a US citizen, uh, maybe a good time to switch gears and focus on sanctions. And it, I, I promise you it will be fun, um, fun experience. The the other thing is obviously the US regulators are treating uh, sanctions as what they call a new FCPA. That means that they're approaching this new FCPA regime of sanctions as the, uh, the core element of the DOJ functioning. That means, again, resources, uh, people, uh, and functionality are going to be there. And that also means, if we see the FCPA trajectory, that there will be cooperation between the regulators. The, you know, we've seen this being done in the FCPA context. We probably will see this being done in the sanctions context, particularly as we see across the UK and the EU and US sanctions, some similarities. They're rolling out in sync, particularly focusing on the Russian sanctions. That that probably will come and we'll see a little bit, bit more of this. Sounding off on that, as, as Sophie mentioned, the, the, the closing the circle uh, around the Russian oligarchs and the Russian uh, companies that are, have already been sanctioned to, to, to remove the ability to, to utilize foreign financial systems uh, and, and, and you know, continuously work around the sanctions, so command them or evade them, etc. That will be the focus. We've seen this now mid-April action where uh, companies and, and individuals from more than 20 countries have been added to various lists because of their support engagement are being owned directly and directly by the Russian oligarchs or others who have already been sanctioned. Last three points. I think when we take a step back, step back and think about well, what 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 is all the sanctions we're talking about? We obviously think about geopolitics. They are closely related. And we are, as as again not news for anyone, we live in the bipolar world, increasingly bipolar world, where there is central gravitas towards China plus and the central gravitas for for the U.S. plus Europe and UK, that also will you know educate and will tell us we, where where certain regimes may go up and down in terms of sanctions sanctions priorities. It it will seem uh, feasible that Russia and China will continuously to be sanctions targets from the European, the U.S. and the U.K. perspectives. One country that may go you know maybe softening in terms of sanctions is Venezuela. We've seen some softening there. But the last you know, point I wanted to mention is in the contracts. 
we mentioned during the webinar today how do you mitigate the risks you know and we're looking at the regulator in particular but you know we, we don't live in a world where regulators constantly in our presence we should think with somewhere out there lurking around but we do see every single day is the contracts contractual relationship with our counterparties with the banks with 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 you know the whole world of what we do as as, as business those contracts have increasingly been focusing on sanctions compliance as well to prevent sanctions violations and to predict and to protect against potential escalations as they impact you those are now have grown from maybe one paragraph to a couple of pages in some cases and that trend will continue to be seen and i think that's where we will see a lot of attention from clients that, that will be very careful in how to approach sanctions compliance vis-a-vis their contractual relationships yes thank you it's a great practical point to end on i, I like that you offer both legal insights and career advice to u.s citizens who may fancy a, a a change of direction to work in sanctions enforcement thank you very much to each of you for for your remarks i think that was very interesting the three takeaways i take from from what we've been discussing i think are increased scrutiny and focus on sanctions enforcement, both from authorities, but I think also from the general public that has expectations about seeing sanctions being enforced, given that there has been so much coverage of it in in the newspapers and on television. Secondly, I think seeing more and more formal and informal cooperation and coordination between sanctions authorities in different jurisdictions, working together to ensure that sanctions policy is enacted as effectively as possible. And then finally, this focus on going after facilitators of sanctions evasion, the enablers of um, the activities of of business people and others who are targeted by sanctions. That, I think, is something that's really come to the fore when it comes to uh, Russia over the past year, and, and we're likely to see more activity in that area. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. I'd like to thank our panellists, Sophie, Olivier and Alexander for their time today, and thank you for listening. We hope that you found it informative and interesting. To make sure you don't miss out on any of our other episodes, subscribe to this podcast and Asha's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a rating and a review. Until next time, thanks very much for listening, and goodbye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.